Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, continuing today in uh, 1 Corinthians, looking at 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is here describing uh, the difference between an idolatrous spirituality, which the Corinthians are coming out of, and a more authentic spirituality. So I've entitled this Magic versus Real Spirituality. One of the key differences between Christian faith and other religions, I think we, we could say it is this difference between when we say magic, the idea of in some way there's an, a negotiation, an exchange, that you do this or chant this prayer or say this incantation. And then you'll get something back. So even the idea of making a sacrifice or an offering to the gods. And then you'll get something back in return. And so in the passage we're about to read, verse uh, 1 to 3, Paul explains an idol is mute. An idol is nothing. Negotiating or exchange that takes place with an idol, it's a a self-negotiation. In fact, there's nothing there in in a sense. Then it's just an inward kind of self-negotiation. It's an imaginary game, we might say. And the danger, of course, is that as Christians, we might play this imaginary game and imagine that it's Christianity. This is what the Corinthians are in danger of. And it's under this, then, I'll read verse 1 to 3, and then in a minute minute we'll read the rest down to verse 11. But So he's going to talk about spiritual gifts, and he doesn't want them to understand the spiritual gifts in light of their past understanding. But let's start with 1 to 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, uh, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. And so to be spiritual in pagan religion, it's a kind of self-induced spirituality. Idols are incapable of speech, Paul says. They cannot do anything. And this may just produce narcissistic self-edification. Where the spirit is active, believers will confess Jesus as Lord. And of course, it's not just the confession. It's not just uttering the words. But it's living this out, living out this reality. Then the spiritual gifts are going to be understood as part of this constructive building up of others under the idea that Jesus is Lord, not competitive denigration of other people. And so the tendencies of paganism are impacting the Corinthians' view of what it means to be spiritual. And Christianity is, it just becomes more paganism where the point of the religion is to manipulate the powers, whatever those powers might be thought to be, to manipulate the gods so as to get the advantage, or God. This is every pagan sacrifice. And so the tendency, I think not just for the Corinthians, but I think our tendency, I, you know, even though we didn't grow up worshiping idols or pagan religion, I think that what pagan religion does, it's our natural tendency. 
our natural tendency is to miscomprehend this. And so this is one explanation for what we might, even the, the phrase here, Jesus is accursed. In the Greek, it's actually uh, ambiguous. It says Jesus curse. And some people in Corinth, uh, they have discovered archaeologists, and I think this is a fairly recent discovery, that they've discovered tables of curses that the pagan religion, well, curse Billy Bob for taking my cow or, you know, that sort of thing. I did, we were driving a long time and listening to NPR and some guy set up a, a church of Satan and he, he did it as a kind of joke and he had an answering machine there and he was surprised that people were calling in. The thing that people really want Satan to do, they're cursing other people, you know. Well, I hope Satan will get this guy. And that's the way that pagan religion can work. And so a kind of alternative reading of this is Jesus' curse. That is, they may be trying to just harm their enemies in the name of Christ. And Paul's saying, that, no, that's not the way that Christianity works. And so this may be part of what he means. You're being carried away by idols. The attempt may be to get the advantage, to curse their enemies. And so magic seeks to control supernatural sources for the benefit of the self. And in contrast, in faith we place our trust in the hands of God for God's will. And the word pagan is actually the word ethne. And all that means is not Jewish. The Gentiles, everyone but the Jews is presumably given over to thinking of spiritual things in idolatrous or what we might call uh, magical categories. The point of human religion, you know, to manipulate the powers, the principalities and powers. You think that Christianity is immune from this? Well, turn on the TV and look at the television preachers. That's precisely the magical religion that they're promoting. You know, send in your money and you'll uh, get a blessing in return. Put your hand on the radio. The health and wealth gospel is just more paganism. It's a lie. But so too is any faith, even faith in Christ, that would do with it what the pagans do. I think, imagine the Corinthians are doing what the television preachers are doing. You know, that, well, look at me. I'm driving a, a big Mercedes Benz. I may be a big chariot in first, you know, in first century but and so the, these people are saying obviously I'm the one that God is blessing I have money I have a big house I have power the temptation might be to say we spiritually important people isn't it self-evident that we're more important we are the householders we are the patrons we are the ones who have you know they've already are, bragged that they have knowledge and wisdom but you could line up two things, you know, from verse 1 to 3. A magic religion and Christianity. Magic religion, well actually the gods are mute. Christianity, and then we're going to read this, that all of these spiritual gifts, most all of them are language based. Magic, it's uninformed mystery. It's very dark. It's, you know, dark magic. Christianity has to do with a true wisdom. Magic, it has to do with power over other people. Maybe the power 
to pronounce a curse in the name of Jesus. Christianity is focused on the service of others, the common good, and this will be the point of the gifts of the Spirit. Magic, it's uncontrollable, it's indistinct. And what Paul is going to say about the spiritual gifts is these are very specific, distinguishable gifts that are other-oriented, not object-oriented. Now, I've said this about the Jesus curse, and of course not everybody agrees with that. In Japan, cursing God was the way that the Tokugawa government would get people to renounce Christianity. They would come in and they would have a little image of Jesus and they'd come into the village and they'd lay it on the ground and all of the villagers would have to come up and step on Jesus and renounce the Christian faith. So it may indeed be that even in the first century that emperor worship, we're not quite sure to what degree there might be persecution. But of course the Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord, the Shogun is Lord, or Jesus is Lord, those are always uh, in competition. Now let me give you one more theory about the Jesus curse. Some people think that this may in fact be a kind of inadequate atonement theology. Jesus curse, uh, that Jesus bore the curse of sin which does not extend to a living faith in Jesus. That's actually an idea that it sounds very much like something like Calvin's penal substitution, the, uh, the lie that would reduce Christianity to a means of warding, you know, a magical kind of Christianity that would ward off God's anger and picture Jesus as just paying off God so that he won't be angry. And so those who manipulate the sacrifice, the priests or, you know, whatever the Christian system, it's very similar to the shamans and the priests in a pagan religion offering sacrifices to propitiate or to appease the gods. And of course, the people that are pictured as doing this are very powerful. You know, this was our discussion last week. This is Brother Martin Luther's picture in discussing communion. If you are seeing the communion as a sacrifice given to God, then unfortunately I think you're transforming your religion into a kind of exchange, a kind of magic. And that's, of course, in the medieval period, the priests offering Christ to, as a sacrifice to God. That's precisely what Luther and the Reformers are rebelling against. Now let me jump on down. Let's read from verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activity, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, 
to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Notice that most of these gifts have to do with logos, with language, with communion together and communication as part of the body of Christ. Wisdom, well that's the gift of wise speech that people can have a practical kind of understanding and this would be over and against, you know, Paul has already compared this or contrasted it to clever speech. Knowledge, coming to know, having a, a, a maybe it means a technical knowledge in that wisdom is a kind of applied knowledge and not knowledge itself may be a broad understanding of things. Faith, you know, we all Christians have faith, but apparently there's a special gift of faith. Somebody who has a robust and optimistic certainty in the midst of trouble. Healing. And in the first century, when we talk about healing, they did not distinguish between a miraculous healing necessarily and just healing. And so some would say, well, the gift of healing today might include medical doctors or people who are gifted in the medical profession or uh, not simply miracles may have been included then maybe no distinction and then the gift of power again it's not necessarily miraculous power but apparently people who have capacities to get things accomplished prophecy there it may be just preaching it may be in some way unfolding the word the gift of discerning spirits, the ability to understand a situation. And then the, the species of tongues, and this is the one I want to end with, kind of concentrate on, because we are inundated today with, this is the one that's very easy to fake, that people might uh, imagine that they have this gift. But Paul says that if you're going to do this, Remember that it needs to be interpreted, and of course that's the next thing, is the ability to interpret. So what were these tongues? That's the question. And to even say that it's one thing, it may, may be many different things, and depending on the situation, uh, it looks, he will talk about angelic speech, a power, or it may be a power to speak foreign languages. It may be some sort of ecstatic speech, a mechanism of release, or maybe uh, releasing emotion and longings or praise. Let me suggest a parallel, and this is just a suggestion, that it seems to be very closely connected with what Paul describes in Romans 8, the sighing or groaning in Romans is something that is a kind of participation. It's beyond articulation, longing for a, an eschatological fulfillment of you know, the glory of God. And so it would combine praise and yearnings that go beyond words. It may not be anything miraculous. It just may be this groaning, this longing. And the 
in the picture in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit gives the capacity to plumb the depths of the human unconscious as the, you know, that is the Spirit's gift. And even the word in Greek, the word for cardia, the word heart, includes the unconscious. It is a language, perhaps, of the unconscious. Language capable of being articulated through the Holy Spirit, which makes unconscious depths accessible and brings out these dimensions of life that may normally be closed to us. And of course, in Romans, this is in contrast to the picture in Romans 7, in which there is a kind of false communication, a deception, which is apparently the universal unconscious psychology that Paul is picturing, that he'll call the body of death, the heart of deception, in which, in some way, our unconscious is not available. It's, a, it's impenetrable. And so we might put two things together here. The idol is mute, it is nothing, but so is the unconscious outside of Christ. That means that we do not have access to who we really are. You know, this is the law approached through the sinful orientation of the ego, the ego, the I. It produces a death, Paul says, a kind of mute nothing, which constitutes, what is death? What is this muteness? What is this silence? It is the opposite. What is the opposite of God? If God is communion and communication, the opposite would be a lie, a deception, discommunication, discommunion. And so Paul in chapter 8 of Romans, I think it's a parallel chapter, describing the great gifts that we have in the communion and communication with the Creator. The communication of life in the Spirit through the Son resonates with all of creation's groaning. You know, that's chapter 8, verse 22. And the Christian's groaning as a kind of, it's pictured as a kind of inter-Trinitarian communion in which Paul says, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What I'm suggesting then is that the species of tongues, and that's the Greek here, he's, he's, he's not describing anything very particular. This species of tongues is perhaps the ability, the attempt to bring this depth of communion to the surface. And Paul depicts the unconscious workings of the Christian heart as an open prayer. This is chapter 8, verse 27 of Romans. He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Maybe we could put it this way. The tacit knowledge of the heart participates in a prayerful dialectic within the Trinity. As we do not know, Paul says, how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And so here is this communion with heaven, with God within ourselves.
You know, think here of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. He is facing the greatest suffering, and it's the time that he spends in the deepest prayer so that he might remain true to his vocation. So too, the believer obediently endures suffering by entry into this inter-Trinitarian communion and communication between the Spirit and the Father. Paul says, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. Incapacity, this is Paul's point, that when I am weak, then I am strong. This incapacity is the precise point at which the Spirit intercedes for us. It may be that we can't articulate completely to God, but the Spirit is there in, in our midst. So prayer is connected to humility, to dependence on God. And it's over and against a kind of primeval pride, the idea of a kind of magical religion that would grab knowledge apart from God and manipulate it. So the expression of human helplessness, ignorance, inarticulateness, you know, when we admit that, it is then a picture of one's relation to God that here is where the fruit of knowledge, it makes it possible for God to reclaim man for himself, humans. For when I am weak, then I am strong, Paul says. There is no end of prayer. Paul says, I'm continually in prayer. I think we too then are continually in prayer, not necessarily articulate prayer, but practicing the presence of God and recognizing that we can't say or articulate all things, that there is no end of prayer. There's a depth and continuity of communion, of communication. So we really do, we don't know what the gift of tongues might have been or, or completely understand what it was for. And so I've suggested that it is this. In that sense, I don't think it's a necessarily a miraculous thing. And in that sense, maybe we, we all then have this, we have this need for this depth of communion because God's being is in communicating and communion and the purpose of God, who he is, you know, communion, the sharing, uh, the love of the Father has for the Son and the Spirit is the way that Paul describes it. Paul pictures believers as those who are caught up in this communicating activity of the love of God. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.